0: Hello and welcome to the Green Sheets podcast, a conversation about intellectual property focused on what matters most to innovators right now. We discuss managing, monetising and protecting IP in the context of what's happening now in industry, IP law and beyond. I'm your host Charlie Leslie, part of the IP team here at Apple Yard Lees. Joining us for this episode of the podcast are Appiard Lee's partners, Barbara Fleck, Richard Bray and Ian Davis, patent attorneys from different technical backgrounds who each support the tech transfer teams of leading universities and research organisations. Barbara, Richard and Ian, welcome to the podcast. Hi Hi Charlie. Hi Charlie. Hi Charlie. The firm supports over 50 European tech transfer teams, but could each of you tell us a bit about your particular experience with this sector? Barbara, would you like to go first?
1: Thanks Charlie. Well, I've worked with various tech transfer organisations for the last 18 years or so. And I find it really exciting to work with incredible academics on some really groundbreaking inventions in the biotech field. It's, it's just a lot of fun. Fantastic. And Ian, yourself?
2: Yeah, my background is electronic engineering, um, telecoms and software. So, yeah, likewise, it, it's great to work with people working at the, the cutting edge and, and universities are often where you find that kind of expertise. So, uh, as Charlie mentioned, we support a number of universities and research organisations in this sector. And I'm part of the team that supports that group of clients. And it, it's particularly interesting work. It's It um, often throws up some real challenges and we, we really enjoy helping out clients in this area.
0: And Richard, how about you?
3: Yeah, thank you. I'm pretty much echoing what Ian said. It's it's the real crux of academia or academic-like research and commercialization And it presents its own unique challenges and working practices and things like that. And I find it quite a special place and special area to work in for, for those reasons. Um, I've worked, worked with universities locally, nationally, internationally all throughout my career, really. I've been quite lucky in that respect. And um, it's it's quite a unique part of the job and I really like it.
0: Fantastic. So this episode of the podcast examines IP issues faced by tech transfer teams right now, which given COVID disruption may evolve. Each item will be covered in more detail in a future virtual discussion series with Barbara, Ian and Richard. If you'd like to register or suggest an item for discussion, email us at ip at appleyardlees.com or visit appleyardlees.com for more information. So it's over to Barbara, Ian and Richard to discuss the topics.
2: Thanks, Charlie. I think, um, I guess it's important to say that this virtual discussion we're having is is part of a series of sessions like this that we've run in person for the last three, four years, I guess. We, we've we run training sessions dedicated to tech transfer teams in, in various locations around the UK and, and overseas, and we were very keen to continue these in a virtual fashion while we can't all meet up in person. So we, we've got a few topics that we've discussed in, in great detail in the past. We wanted to just run through those now in a little bit of detail with a view to whetting your appetites for a future more detailed discussion on each of these in turn. So We've got a little list of cases and topics to discuss, so we'll just uh, give you a run through those, shall we?
3: Yeah, thanks Ian, I I agree with that. I I think that um, I've been involved, as as you have with a few of these seminars you've run in the last few years, and it's clear that a few of the points have resonated more than others, and some new questions have been raised at those events and just in day-to-day work with these institutions and organisations. I think it's worth us covering some of those again here and expanding on some of those in light of the recent developments in recent months and the current landscape
1: we find ourselves in. Thanks, Richard. I think that one of the topics that comes up with our clients very often is collaborations, inventorship and ownership. And perhaps especially in COVID times, I see a lot of collaborations in the biotech industry between universities and other academic institutions, but also between universities and other companies, commercial companies. And that's always very challenging because there are rights you have to consider and you have to think about who the rights belong to and make sure that the right agreements are drawn up. So these challenges are something that we will be discussing in more detail in our seminars.
3: Yes, I absolutely agree. I I think that from working in different areas like physics and engineering it's clear that often a lot of focus is put on the technology and the invention itself. And sometimes it's all too easy to forget or maybe not spend as much time on the actual underpinning reasoning and maybe road or the path that the invention's taken to get to that point. And and it's, very easy, especially nowadays in the last few months with people collaborating via Teams and Zoom and all sorts of different technologies rather than face-to-face meetings. It's easier for collaborations to happen, I think in some ways with lack of travel, but it's also sometimes maybe quite hard to work out where contributions have come from and things like that. And it's all too easy for subtle contributions to be lost in the noise and that can have as we all discuss in more detail in the coming months, some very serious legal implications if you get it wrong.
2: I think it's one of those situations, isn't it, where in the excitement of getting a project off the ground and the the rush to get something either published or to market, it's very easy to forget, you know, all, all the the checks and balances, the dotting the i's and crossing the t's that make sure the ownership is is tied down at the very beginning. It's, it's the kind of thing that seems oh, we can sort that out later. But sorting it out later poses enormous problems, sometimes insurmountable problems. So it's far better to spend a bit of time at the outset getting these things right than thinking, oh, we'll deal with that, you know, further down the line because it's never, ever easy to do it that way.
3: absolutely agree. It's it's essentially a series of formalities checks. But I think because of that, it's often trivialised and left till later. And as we'll explore in in the seminar series, it can be really dangerous to do that. And it's very much worth people's while looking into that initially and quickly as part of the filing process or in advance of the filing process to avoid an absolute mess later on down the line.
2: I guess that feeds into, we talked about sorting it out later. That's possible sometimes, sometimes impossible, but in any event, it will add cost to the program, which is something that is probably best avoided. So it might seem it's a a way of saving money. We don't spend money on these legal agreements and sorting out these contracts at the beginning, but often it'll cost you 10 times more, even more to sort it out later down the line. So we're acutely aware in dealing with universities, particularly in these sort of straightened times that the budgets aren't necessarily there to spend lots and lots of money on attorney fees and legal fees. So We're very, very keen to try and help our clients in this area to keep their costs down. And we have a number of um, different strategies we can use to help out in that regard from either first filing through to these investigations. There's a real area where lots of costs can be saved, which is the overseas prosecution and filing. And we've got a good network of attorneys we can use overseas, a good range of tips and tricks we have that will help to keep the costs down. And that's, that's a key focus for many of our clients in this area.
3: What do you think, Barbara? You work in the US quite a lot.
1: I think that especially when, as most clients are, universities are keen to pursue their IP in the US, there are some things that clients need to be aware of that um, are very US-specific. And one of the things that springs to mind is, of course, inventorship. And it's, it's really important to get that right in, in the US specifically. And it's it's not always an easy exercise to ascertain who actually is an inventor. Um, I know this very well because I spent some time working in-house and working on very complex applications in the antibody field where you have really large teams working on a project. And to actually look at this in detail and decide, well, who did this crucial experiment? Who came up with the idea? Who analyzed the data? Who, Who is eligible to be listed as an inventor is quite a difficult exercise, especially if you have external consultants, collaborators. So there are some challenging issues, especially for the US, which I think we'll also touch upon in more detail when we do our seminars.
3: I think that's right. And both of you have mentioned, or at least touched upon challenges. And I think in our world, challenges normally come with costs. And um, it's worth mentioning that there are ways of controlling costs, not just in the US, but around the world. And they're not always costs that are out of people's hands. They can be costs in terms of. For example, as Barbara's mentioned, sorting out things in advance in terms of inventorship and ownership, but also just generally costs can be managed in a more efficient way. If if everyone's on the same page and helping each other out in terms of tech transfer departments, the inventors, us, the attorneys, and the attorneys we use in other countries, we'll also do a seminar or two on costs and related impact there as well.
2: I guess that feeds into, you know, costs are are one way. That's that's the money that you're spending to acquire a portfolio and to prosecute your portfolio, but there's the money you get in. Now often that's money you might get by licensing or, or selling a, a patent. But there's other means of funding available of course as well. So so universities have a very well defined revenue stream for money coming in through you know, research contracts with other bodies through the different research organisations that exist. But there are organisations, venture capitalists and so on as well, which can provide funding. So some of our work involves liaising between university tech transfer teams and outside bodies that provide that funding. So we're pretty well set up with a number of links into those kind of organisations and they can be critical in in giving these organisations the the oomph they need to get projects off the ground and going.
3: I think that's right. I mean, this a good example of the crux of the research angle that we're involved with with universities and related institutions. We're also the IP strategy and keeping costs in check. I mean, they're all things which are, I guess, applied to any sort of applicant or any client, but I think that there really is a sort of a crossroads in this particular field where lots of these things are even more important because lots of these At least initially, lots of these um, clients and applicants, they won't be making money from the outset. They're looking to make money in some way down the line. And so a lot of that has to feed into things like IP strategy and commercialization strategy, which we're also familiar with uh, managing and advising on.
2: Indeed, I guess, I mean, Barbara, in your field particularly, I guess there's an awful lot of industry tie-ups because... You know, there's there's big research institutions. You know, particularly in the days of COVID, looking at solutions to vaccines and treatments and so on. I guess it must be even more of an issue because the government are probably throwing quite a lot of money around at the moment, which is available for for universities and research organisations to access. Have you, have you come across anything like that in particular?
1: Mm, yeah, I have, and and some of my clients have um, applied for various grants from the government, so that there is definitely money available. I think also the biotech industry at the moment, is is very strong in the UK, both in terms of academic research and commercial research, and and perhaps with the current crisis. It's also seen as part of the solution to the crisis. Just thinking about the incredible collaboration between AstraZeneca and um, Oxford University on a vaccine, I think people really value the industry, the biotech industry in the UK, and they can see that. Um, It's making a massive contribution to solving the current crisis.
3: I think that's right, Barbara. And as a physicist, one thing that I've noticed in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years is just how different startups are funded in very different ways. And the strategies for each different startup and spinout potentially are are very different depending on technology. So I'm often quite jealous when lots of my colleagues work for many, many exciting spinouts and startups in the biotech or pharma space, and I think traditionally there's perhaps been fewer in the physics and engineering spaces. And it's quite an exciting client to work with. And so, yeah, I've often been quite jealous in the past that maybe the numbers aren't quite so high in, in my technical area, unfortunately.
2: I think that's true. I think a lot of the the research activity we see with our university clients tends to be more on the biotech and maybe the chemistry side. And we see, I guess, proportionally less on the engineering physics side than we'd like to see. And I think this this current crisis is... is perhaps shifting that balance even further that way, potentially, because that's where the immediate focus is. There's a real need to get get stuff moving in that area, which perhaps is taking attention away from some of the more engineering and physical sciences.
3: I think that's right. I do some work with the Institute of Physics, and we've chatted quite a lot about whether, a bit of chicken and egg situation, I suppose, in terms of, is IP undervalued in, in certain technical fields, or is it that the investors and the like don't see it as important or is important enough in those fields it seems clear to me from my involvement with institute of physics and and similar organizations that there just simply isn't the value placed on ip that there is in the biotech and pharma sectors and i'm not always sure if that's a mistake or if that's just something that the investors are or are not looking for but again we can touch on things like that about different strategies for different technologies and and technical fields in our webinars that are coming up in a few months
2: I think that's a good point, because in, in different technical sectors, there are different barriers to entry. And I guess in the chemical, pharmaceutical, biotech area, patents are probably much more ingrained, I guess, in the in the DNA of those organizations, because you know you, you think of the classic examples of where, where patents make the biggest difference is often in the pharma field, less so in engineering. I mean, it's obviously still very important, but they, they, they don't quite run through the core of the technology in the same way they do. So I, th- I think that's reflected in the way that people working in those specialist technologies view patents as well. So it may, maybe it's a job for us to get out and educate people and make them realize there, there is great value to be attached to patents in all technical fields.
3: I, I agree. And what, what do you think, Barbara, on, on that note in terms of there's obviously different IP strategy in play and I guess commercialization strategy in play for different technical fields, but I guess in particular with your field, the biotech field, you might have even more particular legal issues in play or more prominent legal issues, for example, things like plausibility and sufficiency, which are also tech-specific or more tech-specific?
1: Yeah, Richard, I think you're absolutely right. There are tech-specific legal issues. And in the biotech field, that is sufficiency and plausibility, which is a bit of a buzzword at the moment. And I think this is quite challenging, really, especially for universities and especially now, because as an academic, you're probably your primary driver is to publish because that is, of course, very important for a career in academia. And to reconcile that with filing a patent application at the right time, i.e. when you have enough data to support a first filing, can sometimes be really challenging. And we, we are quite used to working with our clients to close deadlines when a paper is due to publish or perhaps they're going to a conference to present on on their latest research. But at the moment, it's particularly challenging because, of course, people have been away from the lab and they haven't been able to do that work in the, in the wet lab that they have been meaning to do. And that can present some real challenges, especially in the biotech field.
3: Yeah, I must say, I, I was smiling when you were saying that, because I think Ian and I have spoken in the past about, I, I at least am quite relieved that traditionally I haven't had to worry as much about those sort of issues. It's it's not as tricky a subject area. I, I don't think physics and engineering um, to progress, I suppose, in terms of patents in Europe and the US and around the world. But it's clear to me in the last few, certainly few months and year or so, it is creeping more and more into even physics and engineering-like sectors and certainly into more computational-like areas like AI, machine learning, blockchain, all, all those buzzwords. I mean, it, it really is an objection we're seeing more and more and an issue we have to face and deal with more and more so it would be very much worth touching on plausibility and sufficiency in a wider context not just perhaps for the more traditional problem areas of chemistry and biotech because it's becoming far more widespread nowadays and it should be thought about before filing of course
2: no, good point. I think I think we've kind of not neglected, but I mean there haven't been issues in our in our field quite so much, Richard. And I think I think as you say that they're becoming more and more prevalent. And I think it's um as ever with patents, there's things we can learn from our colleagues working in different technical sectors. And uh, I think we, we make a great play of particularly supporting university clients, is that these multidisciplinary teams are becoming more and more common. I think it's quite easy in patents to sit in your silo saying, I do this, I do that and never speak to your colleagues in different technical areas. But I think particularly with university work, we've seen a number of cases where you've had to work on inventions that straddle different technical areas. I've worked on a case recently with a colleague where it's a chemical client, but they've developed an electronic device to go with their chemical reagents. And I worked on the side, she worked on the chemical side. And it's that kind of being able to work well with your colleagues in different areas and, and help the client in the best possible way that is one of the things we're very proud of doing in Apple lees
1: you know, I think that's absolutely spot on because I've seen that as well and I work a lot in as I said in biotech and there's some inventions that are that straddle the biotech stroke software side, so bioinformatics. AI and um, biotech, which is, of course, really topical. And whilst I'm, of course, comfortable with the biotech side of things, I'm not a software specialist. And I think these kind of cases really benefit from a multidisciplinary team. And I've worked a lot with one of the other partners at Applied Lees on specifically bioinformatics inventions. And to have those two different specialists involved in the application, I I think is the only way to make sure that the application is truly robust.
3: Yes, no, definitely, definitely. I, I think that's interesting. It almost comes full circle to the start of our conversation where people often think about collaborations and things like that. Well, I think they do between universities or between entities, between research entity A and and Chinese University Y, for example. But it actually happens more and more, I think, within a university or within an organisation now where Team A and Team B are collaborating. And you still have these issues of inventorship and ownership and things like that in play, especially between groups of companies. So it's, as we said earlier, it's an important issue, but it pervades everything, I think. I think it's also worth noting that, again, we keep on saying how even though we have these topics in play, there are some very niche differences, but with wide implications depending on technology. For example, we've mentioned strategy and commercialization and costs, but that also comes into play with things like, for example, both ends of the spectrum, like priority claims when you start off the process or maybe freedom to operate when you're looking to commercialize. As you were saying before, Barbara, that's Annie, and it's often very different considerations in different technical areas.
2: Yeah, that's very true. I think the freedom to operate issues in something like pharmaceuticals are probably an order of magnitude different to the ones you might have in a a more physical invention or an electronics invention. I mean, again, there might be issues. And often universities aren't the ones commercializing the inventions. I mean, in the majority of cases, universities will want to have either licensed or spun out a company, generally not in a position to be commercialized in the invention themselves. So so the freedom to operate FTO part of it tends to fall onto the, the spin out company or, or, or the licensee. So th- those are all issues that can be relevant. And we, we certainly want to touch on those as well. But as we say, it all feeds into the overall strategy, which we like to be involved with from beginning to end. I mean, one of the things we talked about in terms of the whole strategy you mentioned, that's the life cycle of patents from priority through to how we would advise on perhaps the contentious issues on litigation, licensing, and so on as well. And we're certainly in a position to help with all of those. But one of the things that often gets overlooked is other rights that might be of benefit to to universities and research organizations. So um, trademarks, designs, know-how in a more niche area as well. There's plant breeders rights, there's um, uh, semiconductor topography rights, all these things which are very much more niche and, and often will get overlooked, I guess, by, by, by some, some applicants if, if they don't understand these areas exactly. But we have expertise in all of those areas where we can help the clients get the broadest possible protection across the board for every innovative part of their of their project.
3: That's so righty. And I, I was thinking, as you were saying that, that um, I've worked with some clients and they simply don't perceive themselves as a brand. They don't see themselves as selling, as selling perfume or selling trainers or something like that. And they're a core out and out tech company. But quite quickly, when they're at events, at conferences, putting out literature, exhibiting their brands everywhere, and they are very much a brand, they might not see themselves as a brand long term, but at least in the short or medium term, as, as they're growing their business or growing their of the awareness of their business, they are a brand. And I think that's often overlooked. And trademarks are very important for them as well. Imagine a spin-out or a startup having to rebrand entirely. They might only have goodwill. There may be no products on the market whatsoever. All, all they have is just their reputation. And if that name changes drastically, that could all disappear. So I think it's something, that again, early on that should be thought about. And I, and I do think it's overlooked.
2: It's another potential false economy, isn't it? I think to oh, we'll sort it out when we're trading, but you know, I think trademarks, none of us practice in trademarks, but I know enough about trademarks to know that it's worth looking at exactly, you know, exactly. in the process. <laughs> and I'd always advise clients to, to do that. It's um, it's a, a, Compared to the cost of a, a large patent filing program, trademarks are relatively inexpensive. So, so again, for a relatively small sum, you can secure a UK trademark and, and a European trademark and, and further afield if necessary. And it's certainly worth considering in the early days of a, of a spin-out company in particular,
3: it's probably a common theme throughout all of the webinars we'll give. It, it, it's not so much about being reactive to the situation, it's about being proactive and thinking of these things early on and you know, being blunt in a quite prescribed and potentially quite cheap manner. Ask yourself these questions and you can save yourself a lot of money and hassle down the line trying to sort out what otherwise could be a massive mess. And Some of these things are very simple. Should we file a trademark? Yes. But if, well, if you wait two years and then you think about filing a trademark and it's already owned and you have to rebrand, or well, you find out the inventor is from a country where you should have first filed a patent application, you could have a huge amount of problems that really potentially undermine the entire foundation of the business, which could have been solved trivially in minutes. So some
2: may be insurmountable, mightn't they, as well? Yep. So particularly the inventorship and the first filing requirements, they can they can really cause major issues down the line. In the upcoming series of webinars, we're going to touch on the issues we've mentioned here in, in more detail. They won't be intended to be a definitive guide as to how to handle each one of these, but rather they should point out the issues you may encounter, give you some tips and tricks on how to best avoid them, and importantly, how Apple leads can guide you through that process and give you a cost-effective solution to your problems.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you very much for the conversation. Cheers, Charlie. That was good. We enjoyed it. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees. If you have a question or issue you'd like our IP specialists to discuss on the podcast, tweet us at appleyardlees or email us at ip at Apple Yard